Here comes O'Bannon, in and out, down the lane. And the foul. Rebounded inside, O'Bannon, who banks it in. Here's O'Bannon, he's been sensational. To the bucket! O'Bannon, the senior, the last time he will ever play on this court at Freedom Hall, and he flat can't miss. Welcome in, guys, to another episode of the Players Perspective Uncensored with Larry O'Bannon. Appreciate you guys for tuning in, taking time out of your day to come through and check us out for 35 to 40 minutes. Promise you we won't let you down, keep you entertained. Got a great episode today for you, and it's a very inspiring episode as well. Now, we always talk to different types of professionals who are in connections with sports, and our guest today was a major trailblazer for the African-American sports community. Today, we'll be talking to the legendary basketball coach and businessman, Wade Houston. Now, Coach Houston, as we call him, was the first African-American to receive a scholarship to play basketball at the University of Louisville, but he was also the first African-American coach in the SEC conference in any major sport. So we'll be talking to him today about those experiences and the adversity that came with it. We'll be talking about how he coached his son, the New York Knicks legendary shooting guard, Allen Houston, winning two national championships, being an assistant coach under the legendary Coach Crum under Louisville in the 80s, and how civil rights helped him become the man that he is today in the community. Now, our bourbon selection of the day for this episode is Jefferson's Ocean Aged at Sea. That's produced by the Jefferson's brand, but it's distilled by different sources. Comes in at 90 proof or 45% alcohol volume. Now, the bourbons age six to eight years, and then these barrels are actually put on cargo container ships for six to eight months across the ocean where they're being rocked and in constant motion. And the salt that's in the air from the ocean, the various ranges of temperature that they're growing through, all of this is supposed to help the bourbon mature faster. And it also is supposed to mature faster because more liquid inside the barrel is supposed to come in contact with the charred oak inside. But I'll let you guys know here soon. I'm looking forward to seeing if there's a distinct taste by the barrels being surrounded by so much salt water. I'm about ready to pop the top for my glass. Let's go ahead and welcome Coach Houston into the podcast. Coach Wade Houston, welcome to the Players Perspective Uncensored Podcast. How's it going? Good, Larry. I'm good. Thanks. Man, it is an honor to have you on the podcast. So let me start off by asking you this. Do you drink bourbon? No, no, not really. Not really. I have been out on occasion, been out at uh, different receptions and, and tasted it because it's such a Kentucky staple, but... uh no, I'm not I'm not a bourbon drinker. Not really a bourbon go-to. Okay, so we'll skip past that no. part, and we'll just dive right into the podcast. So you were the first African-American to get a basketball scholarship to play at the University of Louisville. How was that experience being the first one to really break the color barrier? Because I know you faced a lot of animosity and a lot of stereotypes. What was that experience like for you? Well, I think it was uh, just a time of uh, anxiety, uh, a lot of questions, uh, a lot of concern. Because when I when I came here in 1962 as a freshman, it was right in the middle of the civil rights period, and that's before uh, Reverend King's assassination and and the Kennedy assassination. And my first, I guess, my first experience was going to Frankfort, Kentucky, and listening to Reverend King give a speech on open housing in Frankfurt because, you know, he came here quite a bit because of A.D. King, his brother, and his association with Louisville. But uh, it, it really wasn't until I heard him give his first 
first speech in, I think it was uh, 1963, November, maybe fall of 1963, that I really started to think about where I was, what would be done, and the of being the first African-American player. And there were some trying times on the road when we traveled. We had a freshman schedule during that time. Freshmen couldn't play varsity. But just some of the, some of the name calling, some of the some of the things, the intimidation attempts on the court, those those things bring back memories, not such good memories, but we survived it, just moved on. Right. Now, did you ever get a chance to talk to Coach uh, Bernard Peck Hickman, who was your coach at the time? Did you ever get a chance to talk to him and ask him what made him choose you to be the first African American to bring there? Well, my, the questions I had with with him or the conversations were not so much directed toward Coach Hickman, but well, our assistant coaches at, at that time was a guy named John Dromo, and John Dromo was a guy from Cleveland, Ohio, who just he he didn't see color, you know, he just looked to find other great players or other really good players that could be a part of the program. And during that time, you know, Oscar Robinson had gone to Cincinnati and he had guys at Cassie Russell in Michigan. And, and a lot of guys were integrating the Midwest schools, plus schools out on the West Coast in California were already integrated. But the Coach Dromo was like our buffer to everything. You know, he, whenever we had an issue, a challenge, we'd go to Coach Dromo. And he was recruiting a lot of players. At that time, like Wes Unsell from Seneca, uh, Tim Haskins from uh, Taylor County, Dwight and Greg Smith down in Princeton, Kentucky. So uh, we just happened to be in that first class. And and uh, Coach, Coach Hickman did have a really good friend down in, in Knoxville that was working there. that saw me play in high school in the, in the late, well, I guess 1960, And he recommended me to Coach Hickman and, and Louisville. So when I came up to do my visit, I had a great visit. I had actually planned to go to Tennessee State, and I was being recruited by Knoxville College, Tennessee State, Texas Southern, and those schools. But but U of L just seemed to be the right fit for me. Nice. Now, when you laced them up, Coach Wade, what was your playing style? What was your game like when you laced them up? Well, actually, I was I was fortunate enough to to be able to play guard, you know, six five, and and in most cases during that time, you know, most. Your guard, most of your guards were around six feet, maybe six one, or uh, they were just in that in that range. So at six five to be able to play guard, it was an advantage for me. But um, yeah, I led the freshman team in scoring. As I said, the freshman couldn't play varsity and had a really, I thought, a great promising career. Then uh, I got injured in, in New Orleans in, in, in the Sugar Bowl Classic. I got a, a real bad ankle sprain, came up, for, went up for a rebound, came down the side of a guy's foot, and pretty much ended my my sophomore year. But but my playing style at that time, I guess, was was a you know, normal shooting guard. You know, I, I had enough size to I could post up. I had enough with an outside shot defensively. You know, I was decent, so. Uh, so I was just a six-five guard who I thought had a lot of uh, tangibles and could do a lot of things. Nice. Now, once you finished up playing, you went into the coaching world, and you coached at my alma mater, Louisville Mill High School, coached the great Daryl Griffith and uh, Wesley Cox, and I think Carlos Turner was there. Not Carlos Turner, but Bobby Turner. Bobby, excuse me. Bobby Turner. Bobby Turner, yeah. And so you guys mm-hmm. won a chip in 1975, runner-up in 76. No, we were runner-up in, in uh, 
in 74, and we won it in 75. And then in 76, we got we, we lost in a regional championship to, uh, to J-Town. Okay. So after after coaching at Mayo, you went on to become an assistant coach with the legendary coach Denny Crum at the University of Louisville. From 1976 to 1989, you won two championships. You went to four Final Fours. What was it like in those prime years at University of Louisville, and what was it like being an assistant coach alongside Denny Crum? Well, that was, those were great times. We we had uh, and just a really really a lot of uh, great players, and but but just as much great in the great individuals as players. And we were we were fortunate enough to get just some really outstanding young people, outstanding families, as part of the run we made in, in the eighties. And uh, you know, we we developed a uh, we continued the development of a style that was probably started by Coach Wooden at UCLA and which Coach Crum brought with him from from the West Coast, just a high post offense. So we recruited for special kind of players. You know, we we always weren't successful against uh, getting the seven foot centers. You know, the guys that uh, the Indiana, the Kentuckys, and the Dukes and so we liked our style better. We go with we we find six eight six seven six eight athletes: Rodney McRae, Scooter McRae, and, and and those guys, big guards, big guards who could defend the low post, who could switch in our in our full court pressure. So once we once we decided what kind of style we wanted to have, and we just went out and recruited those guys. We go down, you know, Mississippi and Alabama and, and Georgia, and of course here in Louisville, New York, New Jersey, and just and just look and search and search for the kind of players that fit our style. And once we put that system in place, it was just very successful for us over over the thirteen years. So so that was a key for us was was to make sure that we could almost just plug in players once players graduated to fit our style versus just going out and recruiting somebody because they might have been labeled a high school all American. Let me ask you this. If you matched up the 1980s championship team to the 1986 championship team, who's going to win that game, you think, in your opinion, having been so closely <laughs> attached to both of them? <laughs> yeah, yeah we, 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 we've heard, heard that a lot, and, and I uh... – I, I always stayed neutral on that one because it just, uh, you know, it was so close. All of those guys were just really uh, great athletes, great people. Um, you know, you could you could go you could go player by player. You know, starting with Daryl and 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 those guys. You know, Rodney Scooter and Derek Smith, and then you had Billy Thompson and Curtis Allison and mm-hmm. Milt Wagner, Jeff Hall on the '86 team. And then you then you had you had teams in between that you know and I'm not avoiding the question but like the '83 team they lost to Houston and Akeem, Elijah Wong had kind of a combination of both of both of those those teams you know mm-hmm. and, and 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 that that year we lost to uh, to Georgetown in New Orleans in '83 in the Final Four. And that was a great basketball team because uh, you had the Derek Smiths and Milt Wagners and, and all of those guys and the McCrays and Billy Thompson. And so it was a blend of, of, of both of those teams to some extent. Right. So, uh, so again, you know, it, it, to me it's like a, a series of great teams, not only the 80 team, but the 86 team. And I like to blend those two teams because some of them bled over into other, other years. 
But uh, but again, you know, going back to your question, it, it, it would just be hard for me to say which team would, would have won that game because it just we had so so many really outstanding players on both of those teams. I get you. It's kind of like that question when somebody asks you, you know, which you know which is your favorite child. You can't really say. You got to say. You got to stay neutral on that. So I, I get it. I get it. Yeah. Right, right. <laughs> so ni- 1989, you leave Coach Crum's staff and you go on to become the head coach at the University of Tennessee. You become the first African-American coach in the SEC, not only with basketball, but any major sport. Now, Nola Richardson was already at Arkansas, but Arkansas was in the Southwest Conference and they didn't come into the SEC until the following year. Was it sort of a dream come true for you to go back home, closer to home, to really coach and be the head coach at the University of Tennessee? Well, you know, going going back home was was definitely the highlight of of that transition, and, and my uh, my parents and a lot of relatives and friends who I hadn't spent any time with since I left high school in '62 were still there and they and they bought season tickets, they come to the games and and you know, you could you could just see the pride in, in the in the local African American community and and the family members who would come to the game and uh just talk and and, and, and what I tried to do was, was not only put a successful team on the court, but just do things in the community. I mean I go back to my old high school there in North Knoxville, I go all up the state you know, we had the big orange caravan. We go to Atlanta, we go to Memphis, Charlotte, and they even came here to Louisville and just do fundraisers and talk to the kids and talk about the importance of education. So that part was was, was really just just a great time for me and, and I just love that effort just to speak here you know, in the community and to hopefully impact some of the young people who saw me as a role model. And as far and as far as as the team itself, you know, we were really good. And I, I uh, we had a situation where my my top three players were not top three, but three of my best players were suspended in my third year there because we um, we were like I said, we were we were playing well. You know, we beaten the Arkansas, the Kentucky, and the Memphis, and. Uh, you know, the LSUs and people like that until those three guys were suspended. So after that, it was almost like they had to rebuild again. So the basketball part of it became a challenge because of that, that setback that we had. But 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 going in, going there to coach and being the first African-American was special because of all the things I thought I could do to impact you know, the lives of the young people, especially. Now, it was difficult. It was difficult because we had to play in a league that had such great athletes I mean, from LSU to Kentucky mm-hmm. to, Al- to Alabama or Miss Freewell and Hoare and those guys. And, uh, even the schools like Georgia and, and Florida had great athletes. A lot of those guys that grew up, had grown up playing football and converted to basketball. So the league itself was, was a brutal league in terms of this athleticism that you had to play against. So then you had to go to places and and all throughout the Southeastern Conference, you know, some of those small towns, you just never knew what was going to happen, what the people were going to say. And fortunately for us, we were insulated. We didn't run into a lot of a lot of adverse situations with the fans and whatever. But, but again, I, I knew it was going to be a challenge going into some of those areas where the SEC schools were located. Right. Now, so by this time, you know, a little bit of time's passed. You know, civil rights have sort of set in a little bit. 
was it still a lot of animosity as much uh, becoming the first black coach in the SEC as it was when you became the first African-American player at the University of Louisville? You know, it, it was a different kind of animosity, you know, because because uh, once I became the head coach, we, again, we were sort of insulated from a lot of things that, 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 was, that took place even in, in the late 80s in, in the Southeastern Conference. But, mm-hmm. it, you know, if you, it, it, it hadn't been that long, you know, since, since there was just a lot of animosity for civil rights and for open housing for jobs and for upward mobility for African-Americans. But because of that, athletics, you know, brings a lot of things together, brings a lot of people together. That's the one thing I always love to, love to remember about athletics is that you are insulated, good or bad. Sometimes you want to break out of that shell as well and get into the community and just, you know, put on your uh, whatever you want to put on and talk about the injustices. But for that, the sports you know, crosses a lot of barriers. So so for that reason and the way hopefully the way we conducted ourselves and you know made a difference. And that of course as you as we mentioned earlier, we might not have mentioned, but Alan, my son, who who also came to Tennessee, uh, was a big part of it. And he was he was a guy who just played hard, you know, never complained to the official role. You know, he took a lot of hard fouls and a lot mm-hmm. of chances, you know, daddy daddy's boy and all this kind of stuff. Right, right. But, but, but he just—I mean, he—the the more he heard that, the harder he played. It ended up, you know, four-year average, you know, twenty-four game for four years, and and became the second all-time leading scorer in the Southeastern Conference behind Pistol Pete Maravich. So I think it made him tough. It made the family tough. It made me tough. So all of those things that took place, really, we just tried to turn them into a positive and not not let them affect what we were trying to do. Now, speaking of your son, Allen Houston, I know a lot of Carl's fans was hoping that you stayed at Louisville so that Allen would go to Louisville and play as well. But he went down and played at Tennessee with you, had a wonderful career, uh, got drafted. But how was that coaching your son, balancing being a coach and being a father at the same time, knowing that you're coaching your son, Allen? The thing, the thing that made it less difficult was the fact that he was such a hard worker. Uh, he said – Good examples, a good example for the other players. They put the kids in the community, graduated in four years. He was a math major for three of those four years and couldn't get all his math courses in in four years to get a degree in math. But but the fact that he was um, the kind of skilled player that he was, the kind of hard worker that he was, made, made all the difference in the world. So I think at any point, if the players – uh, the media or anybody else had sensed that, well, you know, he's just on the court because he's Coach Houston's son, then it would have been a, a, a much bigger challenge. But but once people saw him play and saw his skill level and saw all of the, the things that the NBA scouts were saying about him, it made it much easier for me to coach him. It made it much easier for him to be placed in that environment. So, so, so again, I mean, that, that, that made a big difference. And, my assistant coaches were, were always getting on me saying, Coach, you got to get Allen more shots. We don't give him enough, enough shots. So that that was the thing that really uh, I thought about sometimes. I said, Well, you know, we, we like I said before, had it not been for that situation, those suspensions, you know, we would have been right there with, um, with with the other top teams. As a matter of fact, I think after his sophomore year, with preseason, we were ranked 
like 13th in the country going in before that incident happened. So just unfortunate, but but it was a good experience, good family experience. That was, you know, and when he left, I said, you know what, you, you really need to just talk to the players, talk to people, friends, and just decide what you want to do. I said, because well, I'm a, we'll be fine. Your family will be fine. He said, so I said, this is about you and your career. And he, and he said, uh, I've already done that. He said, and everybody I've talked to said, you got a chance to go play for your dad. It's a no-brainer. There's no, not even a decision about it. And I started thinking, I said, you know, I said, our family has spent so much time here recruiting players at Louisville, one of final fours, and being a, a, a second family to all of these guys that are coming in. I said, so if I got a chance to keep my family together and, and do things that a normal family does, including the coaching part of it, then I won't turn that down. And so that's how it ended up. In fact, uh, you know, he was released from his letter, and because we had brought in so many players, they helped bring in so many players, and then such an extended family and so many other guys, it was a chance now for us to stay together. Right, and I think that's what any great father would do. So what would yeah. you say is the key to being a great coach, leader of young men and getting them to perform at their best? Being a good teacher, I think the one the one thing I learned from, from uh, Coach Coach Crum and also from, from Coach Wooden, we used to go out to visit Coach Wooden, and, and I just, yeah, I was just like a little, I was a young guy listening to Coach Crum and Coach Wooden talk about philosophy and, and 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 playing against you know the Bobby Knights and the Dean Smiths and all the guys when I was coaching Yovell, then the common thread that I saw with all those guys that they were good teachers. You know, once they determined how they wanted to play, the kind of players they wanted to have, then they were able to. It's like going into a classroom. You know, it's like being a maestro and being able to have a take a class and and, and teach that class, whether it's economics, whether it's history, or whatever. And at the end of that semester, that, that students progress to the point that they can pass that exam and become a, a good student. So I think coaching is the same way. I think coaching is, is is being able to teach concepts, being able to to show players how to how to become leaders and or at least give them examples, and then and then setting setting a tone. You know, so so if I had to put put use one word to the to determine what I think makes a good coach is the fact that you can you can teach and convey your thoughts and ideas to that team and make them become one team instead of individual players. Nice. And so now that you've retired from coaching, you own multiple businesses. How was it for you to transition from coaching into the business world? You know, Larry, that, that's that's a good question because you know, growing up in the South and in, in the in the Late forties and early fifties, you know, I, I saw how difficult it was for African American fathers, in particular, to to sustain ways to support your family. You know, they were a lot of my, my dad, like a lot of other other African American fathers in the early fifties. You know, they were oftentimes the first ones laid off, the last one hired back, the job that they had. So they learned to survive. I mean, they did every conceivable job, uh, service kind of job that they could think of because they knew tough times were always around the corner. Right. So I saw my dad. I saw my dad do everything from landscaping to owning a little, a little uh, juke joint. I mean, he did. We we bought we bought uh, somehow he bought fish. Uh, fish would deliver in an ice chest, and he sold fish throughout the neighborhood on Friday. 
we had Friday fish fries. So, so when I when I came after graduating from U of L, I said I don't want to be stuck in a situation where if folks come decides to leave or if he gets fired, then I'm depending on somebody else to say, okay, uh, Coach Houston, this is your job since Coach Travis Paul is gone. And that may or may not happen. So I started investigating ways early on in my career just to just to uh, and do as I saw my dad did, just start different, look at different ways to become an entrepreneur, become a business person. And it just carried over the whole time I was I was there as an assistant coach. I just I had kept my eyes open for opportunities. And uh, and also Coach Dromo. Coach Dromo, who was my assistant coach under Coach Hickman at U of L, worked they didn't make enough money at that time as an assistant coach. So he worked uh, a place called Neil Laville Steel Supply Company, where he was a rep for that company. And he as an assistant coach at U of L, he had like two or three other things that he had to do because the money was so low. So I just kind of took took uh, a look at what what Coach Drummond did, what my dad did, and that, and they were role models to me. And I saw a guy named Ernie Green, who was, Ernie Green was a running back for Cleveland Browns for for Jim Brown, and Jim Brown was was, was making a lot of his yardage. Ernie Green was a UofL football player who had graduated and came back to UofL and to, to finish his degree when I was a freshman. And Ernie was playing with the Cleveland Browns during the year that he worked for I, for IMG and, and McCormick in the, in the offseason. Also broke a, broke a call with a friend of his from Eastern Kentucky to support General Motors. So so Ernie was another guy. So I had role models who were guys who, who had done things, not waiting on people for a handout or something to go right, but they were proactive and did things just to prepare themselves in, in case uh, one career didn't work. Now, earlier you stated about when you went back home to coach at the University of Tennessee, how you wanted to really get involved in the community. And you're really active in the Louisville community. In every community that you're around, you started and helped so many organizations that believe in giving back, especially for African Americans. But the one that really stuck out to me was the one about the Allen Houston Legacy Foundation which is founded to foster healthy and productive relationships between fathers and sons, mentors and mentees. Can you talk about that a little bit and what that means to you? And that, that's one of my favorites, too. And, and and Alan and I started that program probably about 15, maybe almost 20 years ago. And I think Alan saw all the things that, that we try to do as a family to support players, support the community, Knowing that the the one common thread that we saw was mentoring, and, and as we did more research, we we found that that if if a young, particularly African American young male, had a mentor in his life, if he had somebody in, somebody in his life that he didn't want to disappoint, then the success rate for that young man just just flew off the chart on a positive way. So. I mean, it just changed his whole outlook on, outlook on school, on on, on the, the way he the way he acted towards the way he treated his, his his family, his parents, and people in the community. So, to make a long story short, it, it, we just saw that having mentors in the lives of young people was just so critical. So that's how we started, and so we started by having a mentoring program where we bring fathers follows together with, with their son and we bring a mentor with a mentee and put them together for a weekend and we have a youth pastor come in and just talk about what it, what it meant 
to uh, have have the faith aspect to it. We need our financial services guys come in and talk to the province, and we would do a whole gamut of things to try to promote a healthy style, health, healthy lifestyle for that father and that son. And and then we combine with basketball. So we play basketball in the morning, have lunch, go out, have sessions in the afternoon with directors, with pastors, and and, and other expertise expert, experts in the field. And after one weekend, we ended up with a faith-based meeting and, and just talked about how a father could improve his relationship with his son and how his son could learn from having a mentor and these guest lecturers come in. So so that just grew into what we call a father knows best. And now it's, it's the Allen Houston Legacy Foundation where he, he developed a curriculum that he takes into schools and these same lifestyle uh, events take place, takes place in the school. He goes and he's got in Memphis and Chicago and New York. We did programs here in Louisville. So, so the mentoring aspect is kind of what pulled it all together. But the bottom line is that you have to have enough wealth and have enough income to because that stuff doesn't happen free. You know, yeah, we had to have dorms, restaurants, fly people in. Right. And now we have to develop the books and the curriculum to do all of those things that take place. So that's why I always felt that you wanted to have enough income to put those things together and put programs together to work in the community. Nice. Now we've reached a part of the podcast where we call Barrel Proof. Coach Houston, we're just going to ask you some rapid-fire questions. Don't give it a lot of thought. Just give us the first answer that comes to your mind. Okay. All right. First question. Give me the name of a coach that you never got a chance to work with but wish you could have at some point or another? John McClendon. I'm going to have to ask you who he is, Mr. Mr. Houston, because I don't even know who <laughs> yeah. that is. I can't even say and pretend like I know who that is. Well, when you get a chance, look, look up John McClendon. John McClendon was like the father of uh, fast break basketball, coached at Tennessee State, coached out in Kansas. He was, he was like years and years away ahead of his time. And, of course, during that time, uh, uh, African American coaches were, were thought of as just coaches who just roll the ball out, do fast break, and no no system, no discipline. But John John McClendon put all that to rest when he when he coached the success that he had way back in the time of Fog Allen and the and the coaches of Tennessee State, and Kentucky State. So so he's one that he's like a legend for me. One thing nobody knows about Coach Wade Houston. Uh, I'm an avid reader. Love to read. Nice. Best way to gain knowledge. Your favorite musician or music group? Probably Marvin Gaye. Can't go wrong with that one. <laughs> Toughest player that you had to prepare for as a coach? Shaquille O'Neal. Yeah, big fella's a big problem for anybody. <laughs> yeah. Favorite golf course that you like to go and play at? The Honors Course in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Okay. Your favorite steakhouse that you like to eat at? Favorite restaurant? Favorite steakhouse. A restaurant, yeah. Oh, favorite steakhouse. Del Frisco's, which is now out of service because uh, that whole complex burned, had a fire. But Del Frisco's when it was open. Nice. I've been there. Really good steakhouse. In your prime, in your prime when you were playing, who wins the best out of 10 shooting between you and your son, Allen? The best, the best shooter? Yeah, best out of ten. In your prime, first to ten, who wins between you and Allen? Uh, Allen. Allen wins. Okay, that's a good father. <laughs> <laughs> this, is a, this is a question we call franchise sign and wave. 
You got to franchise a guy who you're going to build your team around. You got to sign a guy that you're going to keep on the team, and you got to waive a guy that you can't keep. Wow. It's a tough one. Bill Russell, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and Wilt Chamberlain. Who you franchising, who you signing, and who you waving? Uh, I'm, I'm going to franchise Kareem. I'm with you. And and I'm I'm gonna uh, that's a tough one. I, I'm you know what I'm probably gonna I'm, I'm an offensive guy, so I'm gonna you see I'm gonna I have to trade I pick one or sign one right. Yeah, you got to sign one. You got to wave one. All right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna sign uh, Wilt and I'm gonna wave Russell. Yeah, I think I would have done the same thing, man. I I can't even <laughs> disagree with you. I cannot even disagree with you. Yeah. Breaking color barriers. Being a trailblazer, paving the way for minorities to come behind you, and as somebody who is going into the coaching world now that I'm retired from the professional game of basketball, Coach Houston, I just want to say thank you for not only myself, but behalf of the thousands of African-American coaches that have come behind you, man, with the trail that you blaze, man. So uh, really an honor to have you on the podcast and, and really just want to say thank you for giving us the time of day. Thank you, Larry. You hear about the legacies that precede Coach Houston, the players that he's coached, the outreach projects that he's been a part of, the programs that he's put together. And when you really start to research and prepare for conversation, you look at all the things that he's accomplished and what he stands for in the community, the example that he set and that he continues to set. He's somebody that you wish you could just sit down and talk to and pick his brain for hours about stories of teams, of players, sports during the civil rights movement, somebody that you just wish you can just lock yourself in a room and just listen to him talk about all the experiences that he's been through. So it's really been a pleasure to have him on with the podcast and can't say thank you enough for him just taking time out of his day to come through and join us. So let's get to the bourbon so I can give you guys my thoughts on the Jefferson's Ocean Aged at Sea Bourbon. Now, when it comes down to it, I was starting to nose and it really had an intense aroma on the nose and it had some caramel flavors. That was the main a flavor that I picked up from. It has some floral scent in there as well, but it had a real clean, crisp smell to it. Now to the sip, it had a lot of energy right from the jump, uh, which I'm starting to notice from some of the more lower proofs. It had a good texture, not much oil bodies to it. The taste was just as intense as the smell. It was really hitting the roof of the mouth from the sip. Uh, started out sweet with some caramel and fruit flavors, and then it was quickly overcome and dominated by the spice and some heat, which continued in transition, but finished up with a sweet and crisp aftertaste that lasted a good amount of time. Now it's a good pour, but I was curious to see if the age that sea barrels would provide some type of unique flavor, being that it was surrounded by salt water, but I didn't taste any. But nonetheless, still a good pour. Probably not the most economical with a $70 to $90 price point, but give it a shot. Let me know what you guys think. Your palates might find it different. Now, make sure you guys tune in next Wednesday. I'll be joined by another special guest on the episode. Continue to follow us on social media. Our Twitter handle is the PPU Podcast. On Instagram, the Players Perspective Podcast. Continue to send us your bourbon recommendations. Thank you very much. Our podcast is growing. And it's all because of your love and support. We can't say thank you enough. Continue to share and share with somebody who may not have known about the podcast. We really do our best to try to bring you the best guest and best show each and every week. So thank you guys for tuning in. That'll do it for this episode. And that is The Player's Perspective.